Hello, my name's Sam Breakgear and welcome to Brains Bite Back, the podcast where we look at how technology is impacting our brains and society and our general psychology. On this episode, we're going to be looking at the dark web. Now, if you don't know much about the dark web, then you're pretty much in the same boat as me. As someone that's never used it before, my only exposure to it is from hearing about it in films or on television, and usually it has some pretty grim associations, such as being a marketplace for drugs and illegal weapons or even child pornography. However, just like the internet, there is good and there is bad. Uh, To get a better understanding of how the dark web works, I spoke to Alex Hyde, an ethical hacker and the chief research officer at Security Scorecard and the president and CEO of Hack Miami, along with Alex Peleg, the head of cybersecurity operations at CyberInt, who also worked for the Israeli police cybercrime unit Lahav 433. And for our Weird Wide Web section, we will be talking about juggalos. And if you don't know what they are, then stay tuned because you might want to become one if you value your privacy. Let's get started then. Uh, Alex Hyde, would you be able to explain a little bit about yourself? Um, Sure. So my background is in the field of uh, information security research, specifically as it relates to threat intelligence and underground tools, tactics, and procedures, mostly for financial crime. And I've worked within the financial industry for many years doing uh, just that. And I've also uh, worked with a group of hackers out of South Florida called Hack Miami that throws a, a an annual conference. And so essentially, um, my involvement with the darknet comes from uh, observing what uh, what malicious actors are up to and how they're uh, how they're essentially engaging in the fraud tactics that they use. And um, that translates into what I do at, at my company that I work with at Security Scorecard where we track all this activity and assign uh, scores to companies based on the level of activity we observe. Fantastic. And Alex Pelleg, would you be able to give us a little bit of uh, your background in this area as well, please? Yeah, I grew up, uh, let's say, uh, in a dark web area because uh, my first job that I found out about the dark web was uh, as an intelligence uh, officer uh, in a confidential job inside of uh, the Israeli government. And then I moved on uh, to the Israeli cyber crime uh, unit, uh, investigating uh, criminals uh, who used uh, the dark web and uh, all all the other parts of the web uh, for malicious uh, activity and for monetization. After which I also joined a company, uh, a threat intelligence company, which identified the criminals, uh, both financial, and with other motivations like activists inside uh, the deep web and the dark net. I sometimes go there, but I think that we have a, a whole program to talk about it. I suppose that would be, we should probably start off with um, explaining what the dark web is, because I've never visited myself. I haven't dealt with it. So to me, really, my conversation with you is both, well, really theoretical for me, because I have no, no practical use of it. And I'm sure there's many listeners right now which have probably never accessed it. Alex Hyde, would you be able to explain a little bit about what the dark web is? Uh, sure. I, I guess to frame the context for this conversation, we should definitely de- define that. So I'm referring to the darknet as essentially any portion of, of the internet that is uh, not indexed by a search engine or needs to be accessed through some sort of encrypted protocol. So the deep web slash darknet 
terms can be interchangeable. It can refer to portions of a website that are just um, behind a, that, that are behind a, a, a login page, like your your financial information um, at your bank. That's not publicly available. You have to log in to get that. So that's technically within a deep web. But for the the context of the the overall discussion, the darknet is usually refers to a series of software that's used to create um, encrypted anonymized communications that is both untraceable from uh, origin to destination. And while it was essentially the the one of the most popular ones is known as the the Tor network. And to access the this, it's actually quite easy. The the, the electronic frontier foundation, EFF.org makes it so uh, they, they manage the project and you can just download the Tor browser bundle from their website, install it, open it up, and essentially you can start accessing the website addresses that would not be accessible on the public internet. It would just lead to an error saying it can't connect, whereas within this special browser released by the Electronic Frontier Foundation, it would uh, you'd be able to access the darknet. So while it has the the intended uh, the the intention of it is secure anonymized communication for uh, for purposes of uh, avoiding essentially oppressive governments and the like. But like any technology, it's been adopted by uh, the criminal world uh, to engage in anonymized, untraceable fraud method, uh, fraud crime. Um, uh, essentially, all all manner of uh, illicit activity can be found um, on the dark net, but it should be kept in mind that this activity can also be found on the clear, normal internet as well. It's just how easy is it for someone investigating it to be able to have an attribution. I was told that, or one thing that I do know about the dark web is that it was um, released by the government to try and cover communication. Maybe you can uh, explain the history or the, its conception better than I can, Alex. Uh, yeah, that's correct. So the, the Tor protocol was originally developed by the, the U.S. Naval Intelligence uh, Department of, I, I I think it might have been the Department of Electronic Warfare, but it was definitely created by the uh, U.S. Uh, Naval Intelligence Group. And the the purpose of the Tor network was for people in various parts of the world, essentially State Department agents or other intelligence agents, to be able to communicate securely. So if their traffic is being monitored by the government of the region that they're in, they still have a message. They still have a, a secure pathway to communicate back to uh, back to home. Uh, without without being compromised in the process. But from an operational security perspective, if the only people making use of this network are the, the spies and intelligence agents deployed throughout the world, then encrypted traffic coming in at that network is pretty identifiable to, the, to that agent. So what they did instead is they made it completely public. And by allowing the entire world to to essentially create this second internet, essentially it creates uh, enough noise within the network uh, so that communications can uh, still be done securely. And the Tor network is still used for that purpose. And it's by, by right now probably by uh, all intelligence agents agencies throughout the world. Do you think that the government ever expected it to be adopted by criminals or did they foresee this or was that something which they completely messed up on? I, I imagine it probably was foreseen. Uh, the, the the development of, of these the technologies, well, once it was released and, and adopted by the crypto anarchist community, um, it's sort of needed for the original purpose of the technology to, to actually uh, function. So if the original purpose is communication for intelligence agents uh, undetected, 
what better way than to have an entire network flooded with all sorts of crazy activity that would obfuscate that. So I, I believe that was part of it because the crime that takes place on the dark web, it can also be found that the same things such as drug dealings and fraud can be found on major social media networks. So the, the so I, I think it's, it's, yeah, it's like any technology, it can be used for good or can be used for bad. A, a, a gun can be used to attack or defend. Mm-hmm. And Alex Bellog, you you worked for the cybercrime unit La Lahav La um, Lahav four four hundred thirty three four three three. Am I saying that right? Yes, you're uh, pronouncing it right. Lahav four three three is yes, it, it's a police uh, unit, uh, and it has uh, the Israeli cybersecurity unit uh, part of uh, this uh, major unit. Uh, it's a it's a Israel-wide unit, but uh, we uh, have investigated crimes not only for uh, Israel because the nature of this activity is a global activity. Uh, it's very hard to to say that uh, only one state or one only one police agency uh, or federal agency is uh, controlling the this uh, activity or can uh, investigate crimes uh, over the deep web. It's very hard because by the nature. Uh, of uh, the communications, it uses uh, three hopes uh, in the internet or three nodes, you may say, uh, in order to establish communication. So uh, communication originating from the US uh, may end up uh, in Nigeria or uh, Netherlands or any other place in the world. So if you really want to investigate crime and cyber criminals, uh, you must have the cooperation uh, of uh, the global uh, federal agencies and uh, Interpol um, and the FBI and everyone uh, work together in order to do the investigations. Yeah, I just wanted to, to uh, ask when that cooperation takes place, essentially the focus becomes on uh, essentially the investigation of things that could be done, uh, things, way to attribute the user behind the keyboard, ways to maybe uh, reveal the user without looking at the traffic because the traffic is uh, is encrypted. So the, the partnerships are needed because uh, there are things that can be done to exploit the protocols around Tor to actually reveal the user. And in order to do that from a law enforcement perspective, it the international cooperation is often needed, and that seems to be the where the where the focus would be because the technology of the technology of Tor and other darknet technologies is pretty sound. Mm-hmm. What when I think of um, I might be glamorizing this a little bit, but when I think of like uh, Alex Pelleg, your your work in the cybercrime there, or, or your hacking work, um, Hyde. I think of it probably from the perspective of a of a blockbuster movie where there's big crimes and then there's a uh, whole kind of networks of underground like almost like an action film. What um is it is it anything that glamorous? Like do you has that have you both been involved in like big busts or big undercover stuff or or um unveiling of like some kind of silk road kind of level operations? Um Peleg, have you ever what was the the biggest that you've experienced, if I can, if I may ask, and if you're allowed to talk about it. I don't think that there is nothing that I'm not allowed because I'm not in the as part of the government or any agency anymore. And I think that everything was already publicized. So one of the networks that uh, I've uh, helped to uncover was the Altenen site and uh, its operators. It's a major uh, site, which is also not only in the uh, deep web and the dark net, but also uh, in the visible web, 
you may say it's indexed, uh, but uh, it's a carding uh, site, which is also something that you may say about the internet. If you uh, think that you uh, kill the operation of a site or, or deep web, like the Silk Road, etc., uh, it never, it's never like this. There is no end because uh, every site or every operation has several moderators. So uh, you drop one head, but there is another head that uh, rises it seems like very fast. <laughs> Are you constantly yes. just trying to hit and keep exact, them down? <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's uh, like whack-a-mole. So uh, uh, this uh, was a global operation identifying the people behind this uh, activity and uh, lots of uh, communication. I don't know about the glamour because uh, I like uh, when I'm doing uh, presentations, I always like to do a clip, a movie clip of hacking in real life and hacking uh, like uh, in in the movies. Uh, it, it's it's very similar, but the glamour, uh, the glamour is when you monetize, it's when you get the money. And I think that it's the, 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 the best part for cyber criminals because uh, the the amount of money that they make from their activity is uh, on the billions of dollars every year. And cybercrime uh, currently is the uh, third in money loss uh, by, uh, by criminal activity. So the drug trafficking, political uh, corruption, and the third, uh, the third money loss uh, for the world is cybercrime. So you understand that it's around $800 billion a year. Before I started this podcast, I was actually under the impression that um, the dark web was mostly used for criminal activity or illegal activity. And I wasn't aware until I really, um, I think I spoke with Alex. Uh, Alex Hyde, and you mentioned about the how it's used by human rights activists and journalists. Do you believe that the dark web could become the most common form of communication for for journalists um, in today's modern world, especially considering we're seeing a lot of countries are taking quite um, an authoritarian or at least a, a, a darker, more hostile approach to a lot of journalism? I, I think as technologies become more and more advanced and that we can get the word out faster, governments are definitely going to start using the resources at their disposal to start clamping down on that. And I guess the canary in the coal mine would be the the journalists, as uh, often has been throughout history. So I, I think it's actually really important for journalists to understand encryption technologies, things like the Tor network, things like signal messaging, and the like, especially in the United States, the, the First Amendment, freedom of press, is a, it, it's an ingrained principle. It's not just a good thing, it's a, it's a necessary thing. And um, to be able to make use of these technologies for that purpose, it, it's, um, it's necessary. And some examples of how it's been used, um, uh, just uh, I'll give an example of how it's been used by, by activists and the like. And uh, so uh, WikiLeaks, the, WikiLeaks uh, has, a, has a tour um, mirror of their website available and whistleblowers can put stuff uh can submit things to wikileaks and other whistleblowing projects that are less known um through the tor network which is much more secure than using uh, uh doing it just through their the regular clearnet method and it, even major companies like facebook they have a, a darknet url to just access facebook so if you're on the darknet you can log into your facebook account it's leveraged by uh, by everyone it's just it's essentially just a, a technology and it's a very good technology uh it, it works and you, you can tell that it works because 
criminals stake their lives on the security of their technology to communicate. If the technology didn't work, then they're essentially risking their life and freedom. And they're going all in on encryption and communication because it works for them and they're able to operate. The, the same would go for someone with less uh, less malicious motives. If you have to stake your, your life on your occupation, you better be very sure of the technologies that you're using and have them at your disposal. You mentioned about criminals and um, them trusting their lives in this technology. Um, there's one criminal in particular, whether you see him or not, is Ross Ulbrich. I'm not sure if I'm saying his his name right. He he's come up a lot. I'm a big fan of cryptocurrency. I love Bitcoin and all, all of that. And he his name comes up a lot in that. And it seems that when he comes up in those communities, he is seen as someone that is a libertarian pioneer. Um, however, he's also there are some that want to see him spend the rest of his life in jail. And it seems that there's a, a real division here. And uh, he seems like quite a controversial fellow for some people. They really support him. Other people are very against him, or at least the law enforcement seems very against him. Why is it that some people see him as a libertarian pioneer and then the other, uh, there are other people which see him as a, a criminal mastermind? How would you be able to answer that first, then maybe Peleg afterwards? Sure. Uh, so he's definitely, Ross Ulbricht is definitely of the more libertarian philosophy, and his case is actually quite tragic, where he was sentenced to three life sentences for running a website. And it was it was the Silk Road, it was the first largest darknet marketplace of underground materials, but the only thing available, the illegal content ended at things that, if, if it could hurt someone, it was not allowed on the website. So there were no weapons allowed. There were no, uh, there's no human trafficking. There's no illegal pornography or anything like that. It was essentially just a drug marketplace. And he essentially, so he was sentenced to three life sentences with no chance of parole from running this website and basically not having a terms, uh, not having a, a terms of service. And his uh, libertarian philosophy is basically got is what kind of. Um, essentially it's kind of what guided the whole thing and it's a very tragic case where you have a, a promising a person with a promising future getting in over their head and since it's anonymous there are so many different users of this website there's so many different vulner there are so many vulnerabilities there were uh, actually uh, corrupt law enforcement agents involved that ended up getting arrested later on the, the there's no solid uh, essentially that he's being pinned as everything as the kingpin mastermind of this whole thing and he might have set up the website but Towards the end, it was it was a free for all, and he ended up. I'm of the opinion he ended up getting basically being the last person holding the bag, and it's it's actually a, a quite a quite unfortunate and tragic case. Mm -hmm. Alec, do you agree? No, I don't agree. I don't agree because uh, the the responsibility fell on him uh, because yes, he built the site, yes, he created it for the free world. To, to use it, but uh, as I mentioned, uh, also in the case of uh, the Alten site, there, there is an industry. How do people uh, make money uh, in the deep web or the dark net? The moderators, the site owners have a lot of power in their hands. And why I'm saying this is because in order to create a transaction in the deep web or in the dark net, uh, the way to do that, that uh, securely, because you don't know the other part, is only by uh, uh, using the site uh, admin or site moderator uh, to be the liaison or to be the trusted part. So only once the uh, if I want to do a transaction with you, uh, Alex, I'd, 
uh, I need to uh, just ask for the moderator, okay, I'm giving you one or two Bitcoins for this drag uh, deal. Uh, and uh, once I'll get the material, you'll get uh, the, the Bitcoins, which are entrusted with the side moderator. So as you understand, the side moderator, the side admins have lots of power. They, they have money that is passing on, uh, in their hand. And most of the time they are also getting some interest uh, for, uh, for this uh, activity or for being the liaison. Uh, so uh, I don't think that uh, any of uh, the people who are actively uh, using or moderating uh, deep web and dark, and dark net uh, marketplaces uh, can say that uh, they are uh, safe of being uh, prosecuted. Now, about the sentence of three, three life uh, sentences without parole, I think that it's very harsh, but uh, this is me speaking as a human uh, and no one really died of this activity. And uh, as uh, Alex, I mentioned, uh, the site, once it's on, you can't really control what are the types of uh, goods that are sold on. Uh, so I think that uh, being responsible about uh, of the goods that are sold, this is something that uh, is not uh, not uh, not in the control of uh, any site moderator. But again, they have the responsibility because many of the transactions are passing through them. Mm -hmm. Do you think that it's possible to mitigate any of the, the negative or bad outcomes that exist of the dark web? Like we, we've mentioned uh, earlier on the call, we said like any, like the internet itself, there's good and there's bad parts. Do you think that it would be possible for the dark net to exist and maybe to reduce the negative parts? Like you said, um, Ross took an approach which was like uh, a lesser evil or like um, a reduced level of, of criminal activity. Essentially, do you think that we it would be possible to to tone the dark web down at all? Or is it literally just a free-for-all that is completely beyond any kind of level of control? Alex Hyde, would you like to answer that first? Yeah, uh, I, I, I believe it should remain uh, as a free-for-all that's, uh, uh, that's beyond control. But in a, at the same time, I definitely think that there should be efforts taken to make it uh, difficult and uncomfortable for uh, certain elements of, uh, of cybercrime to, to operate within that environment. Um, so there's so just like uh, just like any technology, there's if the user makes a mistake, they can reveal themselves. It's not a foolproof technology. Um, one example is a, a there was a a an ISIS terrorist, uh, Junaid Hussein, who went by the, the hacker handle of uh, Trick, and he was, a, he was a member of a hacking crew and then got radicalized when he was in jail and ended up going and joining ISIS and becoming one of their main communication guys. So, of course, he's, he's getting ISIS all set up with encryption technologies. They're using uh, Signal Messenger app and all that. But what ended up happening is he he gets a, a hyperlink sent to him through the encrypted signal messaging app, and he, he clicked the hyperlink, and it was an exploit that was able to reveal his location, and then he was struck struck with a drone. So that kind of yeah, I mean that, uh, that that's one way to make it uncomfortable for them for, for certain elements to make use of of technologies. Uh, just uh, uh, focusing focusing the efforts on. Um, uh, I, finding where they're messing up at, on using this technology that would identify them versus trying to go after the technology itself because it's 
it's fairly sound. It'll be, it's a lot easier to go after the mistakes of the user than the actual system itself. Mm, but like, do you think that it would be possible? I agree about that. No, I totally agree about uh, making this uh, technology free for all. Everywhere that, where there is good, there is evil. And I think that uh, this technology helps not only journalists, but also people who live in countries where they can't uh, speak uh, without being uh, investigated and without being uh, under sur surveillance. Uh, and we need to understand we live in a mass surveillance world. There is no privacy. When you go to the internet, it's already monitored from the first click uh, or from the first uh, thing that you type in your browser. You, there is someone already con collecting these analytics. So uh, maintaining this uh, free world uh, or free space in the in internet uh, where everyone can talk, it's very important. And uh, I think that we should uh, uh, try to uh, not uh, interfere or not intervene or, uh, and, uh, and even not try to control it by uh, any uh, legal uh, activity or try to chase down this uh, criminal but as, I, as uh, it was mentioned by our side, try to understand what are their mistakes in their real life and uh, then go after them. So I just want to say I definitely agree with that. In a world where everything is under surveillance, it's nice to have a, uh, it's nice for there to exist something where it's possible to, to not be uh, under, that, under that watch. No, I definitely agree. Yeah, until you mentioned um, the approach by journalists or it being used by a tool by journalists, I hadn't even thought of that. So it's it's good to know that it does have that like that positive use. And um, it kind of comes on to my next question. I mean, it's not going away the dark web, um, but there still seems to be whenever I hear about it. And I think maybe this is why, like as someone that's never used it, my associations with it or connotations with it are quite negative. I'm not, I'm not against it, but I wasn't aware that it could be used. It didn't have many positive use cases before, obviously, um, educating myself and speaking with you guys. The, I read in an article in The Atlantic that three decades ago, computer phobia uh, came up in magazines, newspapers, um, uh, psychology studies. It was everywhere. Then during the 90s, there was a fear of cyberspace. And now today, whenever I hear dark web, it's usually something negative. Um, for example, I also read an article recently in Irish Times that called the dark, it said inside the dark web, the truth is there's a lot of evil out there. Since as, as we progress through time, it seems that we constantly have a fear of like new technology. There was even a period of time where people were afraid of the impact that books would have on, on our psychology, thinking that we'd be addicted to them. Um, do you think that in time like this, this uh, or the negative connotations towards the dark web will dissolve and disappear. People might become more accepting of it and perhaps it may even become mainstream within society. Um, Alex Peleg, if you want to maybe answer first and then hide. Yes, uh, I don't think that uh, the dark, uh, dark web or uh, uh, it is not a mainstream. You are already uh, mainstream in it because uh, you as part of uh, the way that uh, this uh, dark web or the, uh, is used is every time that you chat with someone where, uh, via the PS2 uh, or any console, you're using the deep web or the dark net. You just don't know about it. And you're not actively saying, I'm a dark web user. Every time that you chat with someone via Telegram uh, and via peer-to-peer uh, -peer encrypted messages, you are using the deep web or the dark net so because uh, you're hiding 
uh, your uh, communication, it's encrypted, and even you can anonymize the communication so nobody uh, can uh, locate you. So uh, it's already mainstream. We're using it every day. This is the part of the advancement. We even try to make it uh, uh, more popular because we're pushing encryption everywhere. Uh, and the, the one thing that uh, is missing is uh, the anonymization of the IP address uh, that you, uh, you're, you're using in order to connect to the internet. Once we'll go to, uh, to the part where we are going to anonymize our IP addresses and the communication uh, from our computers will be uh, totally anonymous. I think that this will be the, the part in history where we'll all be using the deep web or the dark net. Okay? The sites, the websites will, will strive not to be uh, part of the deep web because they want to be found. Sites want to be indexed because they want to attract traffic to, to the websites. You know, every newspaper, every marketplace, every application wants more and more users. So the websites will remain in the deep web, but the communication between us as the, uh, human beings, as uh, private uh, uh, people, will uh, be more and more encrypted and more uh, into the deep web uh, side. This is my feeling. Mm -hmm. Hyde, what are your thoughts? I would agree with that. The dark, dark web technologies are, are definitely mainstream. And as there's more and more de demand from, from even governments, like with privacy compliances and the, the mandates of, of encryption, uh, more stuff is going to be going to the encrypted model. Where And that being said, though, when there's stuff that's... Oh, even though everything's encrypted, it still ends, uh, it still ends up being centralized by these large, large organizations that still have access to the data. So even though it might be encrypted in transit, it's still available for surveillance and observation once it arrives at the destination, which, if, uh, which is usually a, a, large, a large company providing a service. So I just want to bring that up to reiterate that the, uh, the existence of things like the Tor network and other decentralized technologies, um, that those I... I don't know if those will necessarily ever become mainstream because of the technological barrier to entry, but, but I think it's I, I think that's a good thing. And the technical barrier to entry is that the the bar is kind of purposely kept somewhat high because of the the nature of what it is, some, something that's supposed to be uh, hidden, encrypted, and something you have to know what you're doing to to get into. Um, this next question is a little bit off topic, but it's it's really just um. Uh, satisf satisfy um, something that I'd I'd really like to to know that I was a bit curious about, which came up a couple weeks ago. I don't know if you watch Black Mirror, but there's an episode called Smithereens, and on that episode, a character uses the dark web to illegally buy um, a hacked driver's account for a popular ride-sharing app in order to anonymously anonymously abduct someone. Is this possible? Is it possible to buy um, hacked accounts such as uh, for like Airbnb or Uber, for example, on the dark web? Yeah, it's fair. It's, you could basically buy logins for, yeah. for any account from banks to retail stuff. Uh, it, yeah, yes. that, that, that's definitely a thing. Yes, and not only in the deep web. This is a, you don't need, uh, first of all, I'm a big fan of uh, Black Mirror. You don't need to go to the deep web or to the dark net in order to get this hacked account or leaked accounts, there are so many sites in the visible web which are indexed. Many uh, hacking forums and carding forums 
and uh, the internet is full of these uh, sites uh, because once the hackers are getting uh, the leaked uh, credentials or uh, any accounts uh, of people, they are trying to make uh, as much as money out of it. So first of all, they'll try, it. if it's by a robot, uh, they will try to get the money uh, by selling the accounts as accounts. So they will uh, try to publish them in all the carding sites, all the hacking sites they know uh, to get some Bitcoin. Uh, if it's done by someone that is uh, like more manual, then he will go and try to hack the people uh, himself and uh, get some uh, money or access out of it. Uh, now, it's so popular that uh, not long ago, uh, there was uh, a large leak, uh, which is called uh, by the Cybersecurity Society Collection Number 1, uh, which was a leak of uh, 877 uh, million uh, usernames and passwords. It, was the, it wasn't the unique. Once we did a unique on it, it's around 80 million uh, unique uh, cred credentials uh, or accounts of users uh, which were leaked uh, to the internet. And uh, after this leak appeared, there was something that is called a credential stuffing attack. People uh, who uh, downloaded this uh, leak started uh, using these combinations of uh, usernames and passwords uh, in order to access uh, many uh, services or many applications. So if you have uh, a, a bank account or if you have a Netflix account or if you have uh, some other accounts, uh, they tried these uh, username uh, and password combinations on all the sites. And I must say that they had lots of success because something that we uh, we must remember, the, the weakest link, uh, link is our nature as human beings to uh, use the same uh, usernames and passwords uh, throughout all the sites that we're trying uh, logging into. So this is a problem in how uh, we work. Uh, as humans, we are lazy and we don't like to change uh, uh, our passwords. So it helps uh, the hackers and all the uh, malicious uh, actors in order to gain, get access to our accounts to our private information, uh, because even if there is a site that you really trust, uh, it doesn't mean that this site uh, wasn't hacked and uh, someone uh, leaked the, your credentials out of it. So using the same, using the same uh, username password to all uh, your uh, services, it's, uh, it's a mistake, uh, but it's a mistake that 99% of the population is doing, uh, which makes the hacker's life much easier. I suppose, um, yeah, I, it, it seems kind of obvious now, like asking, and it seems kind of foolish to me asking like um, Airbnb or Uber or those sorts of types of uh, attacks or how easy are they to they gain access to. Um, and I suppose you probably have, majority of people probably have more to lose uh, with their bank account being hacked than either of those, but like there's something really creepy about it for me that in the thought of like Uber and Airbnb. Oh, uh, the, oh there's there's definitely oh there's definitely a, a financial risk for Uber and Airbnb. If you're a driver or a host, they could transfer yeah. the money out or um, uh, cha cha um, or yeah change the the 
bank account information to a, a prepaid debit card where they could pull the cash out of an ATM. So there, there's definitely still risk in that. And um, and it, most of the time is done. Yeah, I mean, yeah, probably 99% of hacks that, uh, on that level are from credential stuffing. You get a big database of usernames and passwords hacked from um, LinkedIn or Dropbox or one of the other mega breaches or the collection one through five, which does, you know, which is now available and just uh, run through them until until you get some hits, check the balances and then start drawing or reselling them. And, and that's that there's a whole marketplace on that. And, and usually usually any account that any account uh, could be a bank account, could be an Airbnb account. If it's a host account, anything that has, uh, anything with a balance in it, they usually sell for about 10 percent of the balance. So if it, there's a thousand bucks, it'll sell for a hundred bucks because it's it's up to the buyer to know how to get it out of there. I think um, in, in a strange way, uh, in almost silver line, I think that it, from my imagination, having your your finances being the main target of that is probably kind of a, a little bit reassuring in the sense that for me, when I think of an Uber or Airbnb attack specifically or something like them, one of them being hacked, my mind jumps to the worst of like how how most people probably like millions of people use uber perhaps around around the world and i'm pretty sure all of them step into their cars with confidence that this is a system which is safe or secure and then the idea of confidently stepping into someone's a stranger's car i mean we do it all the time with taxis beforehand anyway so it's not different but i think it's just having that kind of uh reminder of Things aren't always as they seem on the surface, and you can put your your faith in technology and be like, actually, no, keep your keep your wits about you. But uh, and I, I would I would add to that though that uh, a lot of the times with the these types of account takeovers, that the user should know better than to have their password the same uh, uh, the, the the same password across everything that they've been using for the last ten years. People are supposed to be changing their password all the time, so. If, if I mean, often, uh, and that's uh, a lot of times that's the pushback that a company will will give if someone has their business account drained and it's not covered by the the FDIC insurance or something. Uh, the the bank will say, "Well, your you your password was compromised. That's not us. That's your fault, and you lose your money." Um, it's um, so while there are you know probably more. Uh, uh, you know, type of um, invasive privacy violating stalker type attacks. Those are usually those usually take place when you know, most of the time the people know each other who are who are engaging in that. Um, for the for the most part, uh, random basically random attacks. They're looking for what other any other uh, um, street crime money. They're looking for money. Um, so my last question to you both. Uh, what advice or warnings would you have for anyone that does want or intend to go out and go onto the dark web for whatever reason? Um, it seems like a place which you really shouldn't enter unless you have the technical skills or knowledge to, to back yourself up. What, um, what advice would you give for those people thinking about doing that? Uh, I would give the same advice as I would give anyone wanting to start using the internet for the first time. Or, or using any type of software for the first time, I'd say go to eff.org and download the Tor browser bundle, and yeah, and you're you're there and start there. It's essentially just you could browse the regular internet through the dark net too. Um, I I would say get started and have the same the same caution you would use on the regular internet. Don't don't uh, don't run any yeah essentially the same thing you would do on the same care, uh, caution you would take on the regular internet take it on the um uh, on this as well hello yes i totally agree 
the the one thing uh, because of the technical barrier, I I really encourage you to go and download the the Tor browser, and not not because uh, it. First of all, you can browse the internet. Second of all, you keep your uh, connection uh, anonymized, which is very good. Uh, you there's not only the government uh, that you want to keep your information from, but uh, also other uh, other uh, users and possibly even hackers that may uh, try to get uh, after. So it's always good Marketers. to be private and private and secure uh, with your communication. Uh, but uh, from uh, from the other, uh, I encourage also because it's uh, from uh, being a technical person. I like uh, when people try and use new technologies, uh, try new stuff. So same same warnings as the normal uh, Chrome or Firefox or uh, IE Explorer. Uh, same uh, same warnings. Use it carefully. Uh, you don't know who is on the other side uh, of uh, the website or the chat. Uh, keep uh, your uh, private stuff to yourself. Don't expose yourself too much. Uh, and don't share information which no one needs to know unless you're certain that uh, uh, the person who gets the information you, is someone that you can trust. Excellent. Um, that's all my questions. Thank you so much for your insight, both of you. You've, um, you've really helped me get a better understanding of the dark web. And I, and it's really nice to be able to speak with two experts that, uh, know what they're talking about and also have firsthand experience and also come at it sometimes with different perspectives. So you've, um, you've really done a good job of informing this novice. Well, thanks for having us on. We had a good, good conversation. Thank you very much. Weird Wide Web. Are you a juggalo? And no, if you're wondering, did Sam just ask if I'm a gigolo? No, juggalo, very different things. And if you're not aware of what that is, a juggalo is the name given to fans of the American hip hop duo Insane Clown Posse. <laughs> Just like the duo, the Juggalos often cover their faces in black and white face paint which resembles, well, exactly the type of face you would expect from a group called Insane Clown Posse. If you had never seen them before, I think the best way to describe them would be if you combined the band Kiss with Halloween style clown makeup. And if you're not a Juggalo, but you like your privacy, you might want to consider becoming one. According to Consequence of Sound, Ticketmaster and Live Nation invested in a former military facial recognition company with the hope that the technology could be used to both strengthen and speed up event entry. However, it turns out that Juggalo's face makeup cannot be accurately read by facial recognition technologies. Most common programs identify areas of contrast, like those around the eyes, nose, and chin, and then compare those points to images within a database. The black bands frequently used in juggler makeup obscure the mouth and cover the chin, totally redefining a person's key features. So if you want to walk around unnoticed by facial recognition, become a juggler. Unfortunately, I don't think that will help you go unnoticed by most of the people you walk past in the street, but good luck. That's our show for today. You can find all the details from today's show on our website at social.co. Thanks for listening.